There's something called the DSM-5. The American Psychiatric Association released a revision to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, often referred to as the DSM. It is the first comprehensive update since 1994. The DSM is the guidebook that's used by all mental health professionals. It's crucial to their ability to practice. It defines all of the psychiatric diagnoses. Arriving at a correct psychiatric diagnosis is the first step in trying to pick the best treatment for patients. So it's something that has enormous influence on everyone's ability to provide the best treatment that's possible. Doctors often utilize the DSM to diagnose mental illnesses, and there's been much debate over the years about its role. The brain gives up its secrets grudgingly, and we have to understand the DSM as a set of guidelines to diagnosis of uh, often very serious disorders, but not as the Bible of psychiatry. It is uh, hardly meant to be by either the people who wrote it uh, or in reality, a perfect mirror of nature. The what? Like what, is that your next honorary uh, degree? I <laughs> wish. <laughs> what? I think you'll find me all over the DSM-5. Oh yeah. <laughs> which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and it's the fifth edition, and it's used by psychiatrists and psychologists to diagnose psychological disorders. Wow. Right. So for an insurance company, for example, mm -hmm. to cover something, it has to be included in the DSM-5. Oh, like wow. that's, that's kind of a key part of that. Well, there's a brand new disorder Yay! Wow, another one? Wow. There's a new one. <laughs> and it has to do with grief. Oh. And I think the kind of grief it mm. deals with, which I'm, we're going to talk about a little bit this morning, Yeah. I think in an odd way connects to uh, the story of Peter Pan. What? Oh. Like, I know this? it sounds <laughs> <What>? ridiculous, <laughs> but it's a really fascinating story. Okay. And we'll get to that and figure out what new disorder tied to grief has been invented and whether we like it or not. <laughs> the world around us is full of false choices. That temptation to be us versus them, for or against, in or out. But what does it really look like for followers of Jesus to engage in the messiness of life, the gray issues of faith, to truly allow our lives to conform to the gospel? Join us as we try to figure it out. We are the Brian and Janelle Podcast. Hey there, Brian and Janelle Podcast listeners. Brian here with a quick item for you before we get to the main content in today's episode. I'm super excited to tell you about a brand new podcast series I created in partnership with Moody Radio that's available starting right now. It's called The Grandfather Effect. And here's the quick backstory. I only have really one strong memory of my paternal grandfather, Tom. And it was when my dad and I were standing shoulder to shoulder in a crowded room right in front of his open casket. And I remember standing there a bit mystified because, you see, Grandpa Tom had lived only about 15 miles away from my house growing up. And yet I never saw him. He never talked to me, called me, never came to birthday parties. He was no part of our life. He had disowned my family when I was about three years old. And my family was left with lots of questions. Because from our perspective, the reason he disowned us didn't seem to make much sense. The circumstances were so seemingly trivial it just 
didn't add up. So what happened? Well, about five years ago, I decided to try to find out. And that journey became much more complicated than I could have possibly imagined. And I chronicled the entire thing with a recorder in my hand and take you along in the journey. The podcast series is called The Grandfather Effect. Would you consider giving it a listen? I'd be super grateful for your support. And if you like what you hear, maybe you'd be willing to leave a a nice review or even tell a friend about it. All right, let's get back to today's episode. Thanks a lot. So now there's a brand new diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition. You sound like a doctor. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, DSM-5. Mm-hmm. It's what psychiatrists <laughs> use to diagnose uh, psychological disorders. Yeah. And so you're going to find everything in there, from sociopath and psychopath to obsessive-compulsive disorder, bipolar, mm-hmm. major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. I'm just spewing off things at the top of my head, Go but you know ahead. what I mean. That's where you find those. And they've, mm-hmm. they've added a new one. Like, there's a okay. brand new disorder in there, and it's but, controversial. Yeah. Does that mean it's got to print DSM-6 now? No, I believe they just keep updating the five now. I don't know know why they do that. Controversial. Why we got to make everything controversial? Well, because it's part of the human experience. It's tied (laughs) to grief. However, I think in an odd way, this disorder is perhaps best illustrated by looking at the author of Peter Pan. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. And Janelle's looking at me like I'm crazy. Where you going for real? (laughs) I, I didn't know much until recently about the author of Peter Pan. I just knew about Peter, and I thought, you know, hey, Walt, good job. Yeah, for real. Walt Disney did not write the story. Oh, that's Pan. not surprising. No. He's taking a bunch of those stories. Yeah, he doesn't write anything. He yeah. just steals. He does. Uh, appropriates. Yeah, he does. He borrows <laughs> yeah, he does. from fairy tales and older stories. Uh-huh. Well, the author of Peter Pan, until his death in 1937, J.M. Barry, author of Peter Pan. Okay was one of the most famous men of his day. In fact, when Charlie Chaplin went to London in 1921, he was asked who he would most want to meet. Mm-hmm. And the answer was J.M. Barry. Wow. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And all of us have never heard of never. him. Never. And it's not even that long ago, so we got no excuse. Now, l- listen to the New Yorker's description of J.M. Barry. J.M. Barry, Jimmy to some of his friends, and in his later pomp, Sir James... Oh. He was short and slight, with bags under his eyes and a pale, protuberant brow, like a clever schoolboy who stayed up late reading books under his bedclothes. Hmm. He had a heavy mustache and a pipe smoker's percussive cough. Of humble origins, he grew rich, yet his choice of overcoat remained several sizes too large, as if he were wearing a father's hand-me-down, both in his face and in his body, and, it became apparent, in the lineaments of his soul... Barry seemed ill-suited to adult life, and those neat, child-friendly features sank all too readily into the carved-in sadness of old age. Mm. He was a sad figure. Mm -hmm. He looked childlike in his features. Wow. You kind of start going, hmm, Peter Pan, maybe? J.M., because now I want to see a picture. J.M., what's his last name? Barry. B-A-R-R-I-E. Okay. I heard one podcast recently indicate that a stress he endured in life stunted his growth because the stress was so intense. Hmm. So all this ties back to, if we're talking psychology, no surprise, mm-hmm. his mother. No, you didn't. What's up? Sorry, mom. What are you trying to say about moms? So his mother was Margaret Ogilvie, mm-hmm. a stonemason's daughter who hailed from a particularly hard outcrop of the Presbyterian Church. 
James was born in 1860, the son of Margaret and a weaver named Alexander Barry, in the Scottish town of Carrimer. Wow. a whole bunch of letters I can't pronounce, so That's I just made right. that up. Mm-hmm. And until the age of six, he played in the shadow of his gifted and handsome older brother, David. Then, in the winter of 1867, David was killed. He was hit by a fellow ice skater, fell, and cracked his skull. Wow. Margaret took to her bed under the onslaught of grief, and young James was dispatched to offer comfort. Okay. And here's how he described the scenario. By the way, he does look sad. Yeah, his pictures, he looks like a sad, kind of like... Little boy. Yeah. He's got a mustache. Yeah, he's got a big forehead. (laughs) Yeah. So here's the description of what his mother's grief was like and how he was enduring this. The room was dark, and when I heard the door shut and no sound come from the bed, I was afraid, and I stood still. I suppose I was breathing hard, or perhaps I was crying, for after a time I heard a listless voice that had never been listless before say, Is that you? I think the tone hurt me, for I made no answer. And then the voice said more anxiously, Is that you? Again, I thought it was the dead boy she was speaking to. And I said in a little lonely voice, No, it's not him. It's just me. Then I heard a cry, (laughs) and my mother turned in bed, and though it was dark, I knew that she was holding out her arms. So he had to regularly go visit his grieving mother, who every time hoped it was his older brother, his dead older brother, and he had to look into the darkness and say, Mom, no, sorry, it's just me. Ugh. Goodness. From here on, James worshipped his dead brother with a devotion that carried a taint of jealousy. And once he entered his yeah. mother's presence wearing a suit of David's clothes. The residue of the calamity, as it eventually seeped into Barry's art, was the conviction that a perfect child who dies on the eve of his 14th birthday will be spared the degradation of growing up. And that the death will be outshone by the thought of the perfection, so blindingly perhaps, that the boy will seem scarcely to have passed away at all. And of course, it goes even deeper where he tells in in a biography of his mother, he wrote, okay, uh, that that her mother passed away at a young age and she was essentially put to taking care of her younger siblings, you know, cooking and cleaning and caring for them. And she ultimately became kind of Wendy. Like when you describe the characters of of the story and you look at his life, Wendy is his mother. Wow. Hmm. Like, and you think about the character, how loving she was and sweet and caring Mm -hmm. and just loved to see these little boys who never grew up. Wow. It was all tied to her intense grief. There's a part of it that's so sad and a part of it that's like twisted and wicked. Yeah. And imagine being little J.M. Barry. Yeah. Yeah. Who was forced to kind of consistently tell his mother sorry no mm-hmm. it's not david it's me mm-hmm. it's just me and the layers of the trauma and pain because it's like first you're a child you're in a sense losing your childhood to this whole thing you're supporting your mom which is like that's a dysfunction big time big time but then he lost his brother mm-hmm. can you imagine the unprocessed grief 
Well, and then dealing like the whole time with yeah. the fact that his brother was liked better than him. Yes. Oh, goodness. And he had to pretend to be him. It's sad because it reminds me, and I know we're going to grief, but it I can't help but think about how art, you, you would, when I was little, I thought art came out of joy and good stuff. But lately I'm realizing mm. it comes out of so much pain. You think of yeah. like Robin Williams, people saying how he would use comedy to kind of survive. But I'm saying as an audience of Peter Pan and these other things that we're talking about. How we just like laugh and enjoy it and not realize and appreciate the stories it comes from. Especially yeah. like this, that's crazy. And much great art is born out of pain. Yeah. Many of the world's greatest artists were troubled individuals. That's crazy. <laughs> so what does all this have to do with the DSM-5? Well, when we come back from this quick break, what I'm going to show you is how really J.M. Barry's mother is a really good illustration of a brand new disorder yeah. added to the DSM-5. It's Brian from the Brian and Janelle podcast. Want to hit pause real quick to ask for your help on something. Thank you so much for listening when there's so many other options out there. In fact, as you know, it can be oftentimes really hard this day and age to find quality Christian content in the podcast universe. That's why we'd be grateful if you'd consider spreading the word about the Brian and Janelle podcast. I mean, you know how it is. You find your favorite podcast, you listen to it, you're used to it and you assume everyone knows about it. When the reality is most of the great podcasts I found out about over the years have come from direct recommendations from either podcast hosts or from other just friends of mine who tell me to listen to something. So maybe today you'd consider telling a friend about the Brian and Janelle podcast. We'd be super grateful. Let's get back to the show. Since the 1990s, a number of researchers have argued that intense forms of grief should be classified as mental illness, saying that society tends to accept the suffering of bereaved people as natural, but it fails to steer them towards treatment that could help. Mm. And so as, as Dr. Paul Applebaum says, he's an expert on all this stuff, and he's part of the committee that adds new disorders to the DSM. Mm -hmm. He said, they were the widows who wore black for the rest of their lives, who withdrew from social contacts and lived the rest of their lives in memory of a husband or wife they had lost. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of J.M. Barry, a child, a child. Yeah. they had lost. He said that they were the parents who never got over it. Mm. And that was how they talked about them. He mm -hmm. said, colloquially, we would say they never got over the loss of that child. Again, J.M. Barry's mother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And while grief is normal and you never fully recover from, I can only imagine, the loss of a child, this is incapacitating grief. Mm -hmm. Most of us are able to get back up, go back to work, and you struggle mentally processing the things, but you go on with life. You clean your house, you cook yeah. your food, you... You know, you keep eating and, and working. In this case, it sounded like she just turned the light off and laid in bed. Well, and you know, you might be like, well, again, what's controversial about that? Well, throughout this time, since the 1990s, critics of the idea have argued vigorously against categorizing grief as a mental disorder, saying that, that the designation risks pathologizing a fundamental aspect of the human experience. Okay. Because grief is a fundamental aspect yeah. mm -hmm. of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Everyone experiences grief. That's right. And if you haven't, just live long enough. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, yeah. And if yeah. you haven't and you're capable of listening and processing this conversation, yeah. 
you're in denial. Well, okay, so you're not connecting it. I had years where I was like, okay, I haven't lost anybody close to me. Yeah, but you're still grieved. Maybe you lost your whoopee when you were a little kid. Okay. And you grieved. Maybe your best friend betrayed you. Uh, okay, maybe so we're it, not just connecting it to... It's not just death. Oh, I like Grief that. Grief is a, is a common human mm-hmm. experience. Is that how they're defining it, though? Well, again, th- this is the concern, is that grief really is a broad thing. What's grief? I mean, exactly. grief could be losing your wallet. Yeah. And you grieve or, over the experience. You know, I've heard of divorce being called like a death. The grieving yes. of divorce is a death. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A loss of a best friend. The, you grieve over moving. My yeah. wife and I have moved across, and we lived in three different states. Each time you go through a period of grief as you yeah. lose people you care about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, some critics warn that there could be false positives. Grieving people told by doctors that they have mental illness when they're actually just grieving. Yeah. yeah. And so one uh, psychologist, and uh, she, she's an associate professor at Arizona State University, Joanne Cacciatore, she says, I completely, utterly disagree that grief is a mental illness. When someone who is, quote unquote, an expert tells us that we are disordered mm-hmm. and we're feeling very vulnerable and feeling overwhelmed, we no longer trust ourselves and our emotions. To me, that's an incredibly dangerous move. And short-sighted. But then, of course, you have the people who have advocated for this for years. And one expert indicated, as a clinician, help people, even get to the point where grief would require antidepressants. There was a, a small percentage of people who were still, although not as sad, they were still overcome by grief. Yeah. Like there was a layer that the antidepressants just couldn't fix and counseling. Oh, wow. Her research showed that for most people, symptoms of grief peaked at six months after death of a loved one. Wow. A group of outliers, though, she estimates about 4%, Mm. remained stuck and miserable. Mm. And they'd struggle after six months. And so the sensitive question for psychologists the whole time was, okay, if the disorder is called prolonged grief, Mm -hmm. how long is prolonged? Right. Because in theory, somebody like J.M. Barry you know, the author of Peter Pan, yeah. his mother, it's not too out of the ordinary. Someone would lay in bed grieving a child in the dark. Are you kidding me? Of course they would. Yeah, but I can see how there is a thing of like, it's too long only because you got other kids, you got mm-hmm. a job, you got bills, you got to pay. I mean, at some point you have to function. Right. But again, don't we all grieve differently? Yeah. And so how long is prolonged? Mm-hmm. How long qualifies as a mental disorder? See how complicated that is? Because people grieve so differently. I mean, I remember the closest person I had, a relative, was an an aunt and uncle we spent every holiday with. But she wasn't even really an aunt. They weren't an aunt and uncle. It was my mom's cousin and her husband. My mom was an only child. My dad was estranged from his brother. When she passed away tragically of cancer a number of years ago, Mm -hmm. her daughter didn't even come to the burial. She went to the funeral and then skipped the internment. And we, I remember going, like, whispering with everyone, where is she? She's not here. What's mm-hmm. wrong? I would never have done such a thing. Yeah. It was part of how she grieved. She right. just couldn't bear the thought of watching her mother be, like, buried. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's complicated, too, because, Ron, when you mentioned, you know, some people don't clean their home and all mm-hmm. lights out and all good, and then there's others who are, like, grieving in an extreme way, but are functional. So we can look at them and be like, oh, they're good. But their grief manifests itself in different ways. Mm -hmm. It could be anger for years that needs to be addressed. 
And so I guess we're trying to figure out how long past six months. Yeah. And advocates of this had a brilliant political move that ultimately enabled prolonged grief disorder to become a mental disorder by advocating for a specific period of time hmm. that prolonged grief could qualify as. Mm -hmm. But we also, I think, ought to talk about that from a faith perspective. Yeah. Like, what is grief? What does it look like? How long does it last? How long should it take to grieve? So you are among us, I think, the one to experience probably the most sudden and difficult yeah. grief at a younger age. Yeah. Unless, Ron, you can correct me on this. How old were you when you lost your dad to cancer? I was 33. So, I mean, can you quantify how long did it take you to grieve? Can you put a number on it? I cannot, especially because I don't think I did it well. So I'm not Peter Pan's mom or, or anybody that's in that extreme. But there has been in the last few years feelings that I'm like, yeah, I don't think I grieved my dad. There are things that I do or topics that I just don't process well. And I'm learning from myself that I've lied to myself all my life, that I'm like strong. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, honestly, though, I'm not oh, too surprised you're the oldest. Yes. So like my mom, I moved them into my house. Like I asked them to come to care for them. And so with being the oldest, with that process, it was like I had to be there for my mom. Then with my siblings, it's like I got to be there for them. And I'm not God. So part of me that I'm learning is like, who mm -hmm. do I think I am? I could just be like, y'all, we're all messed up, you know? But I never wanted to lose it because I was just like, they got to know, like, we're good. And so years go by, and then you you start realizing, hold up, am I good? You know, did I process this? That's why I like that we're validating prolonged grief because time doesn't heal grief. You know, it does yes, the not. the dumb adage, time heals all wounds. Yeah. No, it doesn't. And it can affect relationships. It can affect, obviously, functioning. So I like the idea of helping people, just the conversation of, of us explicitly talking about it. One thing I told you I looked up and then I remembered. I just asked my mom, and she should be listening because, hello, I'm Janelle, but she's not listening to me. <laughs> so <laughs> the, I forget the name, but there's a thing in Dominican Republic especially. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it here. But when somebody passes, it's called Los Nueve Días de Rezos, the nine days of prayer. That's what it is. And so it's like paused. And for nine days, people come over your house and, you know, they have meals and they mm -hmm. pray and all that. And then I looked it up and there's a Jewish tradition first found in the Old Testament early, like Genesis, close to when. And I think it was when Joseph died, but even through Aaron and Moses. And the most common length of mourning was seven days mm -hmm. and sometimes as long as 30. And they would do similar things like share a meal, grieve with family and friends. Mm -hmm. And I know here we have wakes and funerals, but we don't do that. We don't pause and like really sit in the grief. Right. We have one day and yeah. off you go. And so I think maybe I'm, I'm victim to that plus all my other dysfunctions of thinking I got it all together and I'm strong of like early, as early as possible, sitting in it and really processing it and grieving it. Yeah, Jewish tradition still does it. It's called to sit shiva. That's what it's called? Uh -huh. Sit shiva. Oh, I've missed that Where first part. You, you basically like sit for seven days with family and friends. And according to Jewish law, in, individuals would, would do this after losing a parent, spouse, sibling, or child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like you stay home 
You hold a service each evening. Family members gather in one location to share in the experience. And you see, even in the scriptures, people would hire mourners mm. to help them grieve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing now from psychology, what unhealthy prolonged grief could look like. But do we even know what does grief look like and do we do it well? I don't know, as followers of Christ, even how well we grieve. One of the things I wrote down is I wondered whether we warp the gospel in a way that robs people of grief. Maybe that's horrible to say, but we do believe, of course, that for those who love Jesus and have repented of their sins and trust alone in Christ for their salvation, death isn't the end. It's the beginning of something better. And that's very true. Mm -hmm. And so we have, I think a lot of us have this tendency of, oh, I know grandma died, but don't worry, she's with Jesus now. Mm You'll see her again. Mm-hmm. As in, whoa, stop grieving. Yes. What, what, you don't believe the gospel? Yeah. You're so sad. If you believed the gospel, maybe you mm-hmm. wouldn't be so sad. Exactly. Come on. I don't think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's not fair. It's dismissive. And it's so, like, disturbing. Because if I love the Lord, and somebody told me that, and I kind of grew up thinking that, I would dismiss my own feelings and stuff them. Can you imagine all the issues that would come out of that? Like, I would dismiss the fact of, no, but I really do miss my dad. I really Mm -hmm. do need to process the years, if I live this long, that I'll have without him that I wasn't planning to. One of my kids will ask me, how is your dad? And he'll, like, ask me questions like he was a stranger. He was so much a part of who I am. So those sad moments, if I believed what you're saying, I'd just be like, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to feel sad and just kind of dismiss that instead of comfortably, like in Psalms, bringing it to God and saying, God, you know, I feel sad and tell the Lord, I trust you. I know I have eternal hope, but I'm sad about whoever it is that I miss. Like you, you even think of uh, even media depictions of, let's say someone's in the hospital waiting room, someone's tragically gone mm-hmm. through some accident. They're trying to hold it together for everyone. Yeah. Right. Isn't that yeah. the image? Yeah. Be, be strong. Can't lose it. And yet when you look in the Old Testament, <laughs> yeah. when David did his whole bad deal with Bathsheba, mm-hmm. it's the Brian version, his child became ill. Remember? Yeah. And so David pleaded, it says in verse 16 in 2 Samuel 12, mm-hmm. uh, it says, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent his nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. I mean, that is a man who mm-hmm. is unashamedly grieving to the point he wouldn't even get up off the ground. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's what healthy grieving looks like, but it sure is better than, it's not so bad. Yeah. Right after Jesus said, told Martha, I am the resurrection before he resurrected Lazarus, he wept. I mean, like if he grieved knowing right? this man's about to get up. I mean, doesn't that give us excuse to to validate Mm -hmm. the emotions. And I think that's another thing with believers. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with emotions and faith. Like we feel like they're kind of outside of the whole spiritual realm and they're all one. Going back to the David example, I think a lot of times we look at what happened after he grieved. Mm -hmm. The child passed away and the first time he heard that the child was gone, boom, he pops up, goes, gets cleaned up and... Mm -hmm and is right back into normal life. Mm -hmm. 
and people were stunned of the change. And he said, well, I know I'll see them again one day. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we look at that and say, well, you can have your moment of grief, but then you have to move on. And even Thessalonians don't grieve like the world that has no hope. Mm-hmm. That's still a hard word, isn't it? Yeah. We somehow mistranslate that to say, don't grieve. But we do grieve. Just we grieve with hope. Yeah. That's a powerful word, Ron. But doesn't I that, like it that. feels, I don't want to say unattainable, but it feels so nebulous. I can't see it. Mm-hmm. Like what? It's foggy. What does that look like? I know to, that's right. Because when you're in the with hope. midst of it, I don't feel hopeful. I mean, it does, but like not in the moment. Yeah, and, and you're right, Ron. People warp that passage. Yeah. yeah. Oh, don't grieve. And even as you think about what happened on Good Friday, imagine telling Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus and Mary, who are taking him down from the cross, mm-hmm. oh, don't worry, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get better. <laughs> I mean, the women the next morning at the tomb, yeah. weeping yes. and mourning. Yeah. And when you think about what he had to endure for me, mm-hmm. for you, like for the wickedness we've done, he took our execution essentially because with right. death is what we deserve. Right? Aren't we losing something if we just race past that? I think Sunday's so. coming. Yay! It's Easter. Yeah. Oh yeah, he died for right. us anyway. He's, he rose again. Now his mm-hmm. conquering of death is a key aspect of the Christian faith. Yeah. But let us not forget what he he endured. Yeah. As we talk about how to grieve well as believers. One of the questions that comes to mind that I'm learning to ask myself is, what's the Lord inviting me to here? So what are we missing out on? Like if, since we're looking at scripture and saying, we're kind of encouraged to sit in grief and we see examples of it, even in the Old Testament, what are we missing out on? What does the Lord have for us when we slow down and really sit in our grief? You know, I think that's a very good question. I don't know that I have the perfect answer to that. But what I can tell you is that I know from my own experience in counseling in the last few years, Mm -hmm. really with emotions, we have three choices. We can stuff our emotions and implode. We can stuff our emotions and explode. Or we can feel our emotions. I stuff them so I can be strong, right? It's kind of what you described, what you did. I'm just going to, I'm going to stuff them inside. And then you can, you can really cause a lot of trauma in your own psyche, or the people who become rage monsters in the midst of grief or, or trauma or whatever. Or, like, what if you just enabled, you gave yourself a week and you didn't try to be strong for anybody? You ugly cried. And people didn't ask you to stop. Not because you don't have hope. You can certainly cling to hope that someone found Christ and, and, is, and is in heaven. But they're not with you anymore, and that's sad. How is that not sad? It's joyous that they're in heaven. And terrible that you don't have your father. Yeah. And that your children don't get to meet your father. Yeah. And And it's okay to call that sad. Yeah. And sharing it with the people around us, because I think we got to teach the people around us how to grieve and letting them know you're going to be okay. You can grieve and you'll be good. Look, I'm fine. I'm functioning. I've learned when I allow myself to grieve, there's a whole level of trusting God and leaning on God that you learn that you would never learn outside of the grieving process. And not that the Lord causes loss, but I think when we allow Him to use it, validating our emotions, validating, like, I don't know what to do, I think there's beauty there. You don't feel the beauty in that because you feel like a mess. 
one thing I reflect a lot on is Hagar when she was grieving because of her situation. Abraham and Sarah asked her to go to bed with Abraham because they just got desperate with God's plan not being quick enough. And she did. And she was mistreated, and the Bible said so badly by Sarah that she left and ran away. Now, this is a slave all alone. Imagine pregnant, all the emotions, no family, and just left. And I just, like, love what the Bible says, that the Lord found her, (laughs) saw her in her grief. Without that grief, without that moment, without the loneliness and isolation, you don't have that moment where you feel seen by God. Because in your strong moments, you're good. You know, and so that's the beauty of learning to grieve well and really saying, I got no control, I don't know what to do. Because then that's where the Lord comes and takes control. Amen. And Paul actually talks about that very point, right? When he wanted the Lord to remove the thorn in his flesh. Yeah. It's in his weakness that he found the strength of the Lord. So what are we missing? I think you had the right question, right? Yeah. What what are we missing when we don't grieve well? Yes. And I think it's intimacy with Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that allows us to lean on him and find his strength, not our own. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, if you like what you hear on a weekly basis, we'd be grateful for your ratings and reviews wherever you listen. And also subscribe so you get the latest episodes. Follow us wherever you are on social media and search for us online. We're at brianandjanelle.org. Don't miss our weekday morning show with conversations just like this. You can listen on the Moody Radio mobile app or, again, at our website, brianandjanelle.org. Special thanks to the talented team of individuals who tirelessly put together this podcast every week, Josue Villa, Mike Reynolds, and Ron Eastwood. The Brian and Janelle Podcast is a production of WCRF Moody Radio Cleveland. Until next time, we're Brian and Janelle.